everyone. There's a, a book called The Worst Case Scenario Survival Handbook. It's a collection of interviews with experts on, on how to escape different scenarios uh, with chapters like how to escape from quicksand, how to wrestle an alligator, how to land a plane, uh, you know, should the pilot go wrong, you know, how to break down a door, how to survive a parachute mishap. I mean, this is just to name a few, but I, I want to do a little quiz to test your survival skills from the book, okay? It's a multiple choice. Uh, what should you do if you're confronted by an angry mountain lion, like the one you're seeing here, okay? So you're hiking at Asbury Woods, and a, a mountain lion has escaped from the Erie Zoo. What would you do to survive? I'll give you four options. Ready? A, run. B, play dead. C, make yourself look bigger by opening your coat. D, sing a lullaby to calm it down. Now, how many of you said D, sing a lullaby? Bro, you're dead on the spot. Don't ever do that. According to the experts, the answer is C, make yourself look bigger by opening your coat. So I want to try one more. This is the same situation and that you're facing an angry mountain lion, but this time you have a small child with you. Again, there are four options. Which would you choose? Pick the child up, shield the child with your body, C, shield your body with the child, uh, D, run because you may not be able to outrun the mountain lion, but you could certainly outrun that small child. Anyway, do you have a guess? The, the, the correct answer is A, pick the child up. Why? Because it will make you look bigger. And you probably want to open your coat and you probably want to open the child's coat and just look as big as possible. This is what the experts say. And so today we've learned that whenever visiting your local zoo, no matter what season of the year, always wear a big coat. Now listen, the idea behind this survival book is solid because you never really know what curves life is going to throw at you. You never really know when you might face a life or death decision and you'll need to know what to do. Well, there's another book that also has some life and death scenarios in it, and we're going to read about one today. I'm talking about the book of Daniel, and we're going to be in chapter 3 uh, today. Daniel and his three friends, remember, had no idea when they started their day that, that they would have a worst-case scenario survival moment. And listen, you and I aren't exempt from blindsiding events or painful experiences that come from living in a godless society. Sometimes you need to decide on the spot what it looks like to follow Jesus in this moment. We've been learning all month about how to live a life of faith in a culture that can turn against you. We're going to pick things up today mid-story. Last week we learned that an entire nation was gathered outside of Babylon. The egotistical king Nebuchadnezzar had built a tower to himself made of gold, and he was trying to enforce a new law that everyone would worship that image. And so at the sound of the orchestra, everyone was expected to bow down to the king's statue. A couple hundred thousand people or so did it, with a few exceptions. The three exiles from Judah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they remained on their feet. While everyone else was bowing, they stood. They didn't bow. They were loyal to their God, to our God. Last week, we learned from their example in the first 18 verses of Daniel chapter 3 about the five ingredients of bold obedience. And so the music plays, 
The three Hebrew teenagers don't bow. The king is angry and embarrassed, uh, but he really likes these guys, and so he gives them a rare second chance, but it, it came with one caveat. He says, remember, if you don't bow down this time, I'm giving you one more chance, but if you don't bow down this time, you're going to get thrown into the fiery furnace. And they look back at the powerful king, the most powerful person in the world, and they say, no need to waste anyone's time here. We're not going to bow. No way. And here's what we're going to see today. It's my big idea. That in your devotion, God will bring deliverance. I'm going to pick things up in the story in chapter 3, verse 19. And we're going to get ready to learn four lessons on deliverance from the fiery furnace. So look at verse 19. It says, Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression on his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. So the king is furious. His threats were making no impression on these guys. And in the face of their unshakable devotion, Nebuchadnezzar loses control. I love this. It says that his face changed expression. Imagine his face, and he's turning bright red and purple. His nostrils are flaring. The veins in his neck start popping. The wrinkles on his forehead are furrowed. He has hit the breaking point. Anyone ever seen anyone hit this moment? I mean, anger is an ugly thing, isn't it? And in anger, not only are our features distorted, but our judgment is also distorted. Nebuchadnezzar had lost his ability to think logically, and he began to make stupid decisions. Proverbs 14, 17 says, A man of quick temper acts foolishly. Another version says, There is no fool on earth like a man who has lost his temper. He's so fired up, he orders the furnace to be heated seven times hotter than usual. As we learned last week, six is a number in the Bible denoting incompletion. Uh, usually man's weak efforts to oppose God that always come up a little short. That's the number six. Seven, on the other hand, is the number of completion or perfection. Seven is often used in the ancient world as saying a, a lot. So what Nebuchadnezzar is doing here, he's saying, I want you to crank that furnace up as hot as you can possibly make it. Look at verse 20. It says, And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. And so he calls in the best and the brightest to bind the, the three friends as if they had any chance of escaping by foot anyway. Again, he's not thinking real clearly. And he, he binds them, and then he orders them to be burned up. Now, this idea of being burned to death is a, is a storied form of execution through history. In addition to just the torturous physical pain of fire, to deliberately burn someone to death is incredibly inhumane. It's, it's treating a human being like an object, like a stick of wood to just to be disposed of, with not even a corpse left to, to mourn or to commemorate, which in the ancient world, it was a very big deal to not have a body. This is one of the most cruelest, the most painful, most dehumanizing ways to die in, in the whole cruel history of our race. In fact, Fox's Book of Martyrs includes the stories of some saints who have been burned at the stake. And if you want a humbling look at the price some people have paid for their faith, it's an enlightening read. One story is of a man named John Hooper, a Protestant reformer, who was burned at the stake by the, the Queen of England, Mary I. She later became known as Bloody Mary, by the way, because of her hundreds of executions. But Reverend Hooper was deeply committed to the Bible, and he made a habit of having the poor and the homeless into his home for meals. 
He was arrested for his supposed heretical beliefs and he was imprisoned for 18 months. Finally, he was burned in front of his congregation and thousands of people. And while the fire was being prepared and stoked, some of the disciples pleaded with him to spare himself. Some of his disciples, by the way. And they said, listen, life is sweet and death is bitter. To which he famously replied, eternal life is more sweet and eternal death is more bitter. And as was his custom, before the fire was lit, a box containing uh, the, the, the full pardon by the queen was set before Hooper. It was one final temptation to disown Christ. She set the box there, but he sent the box away and he faced the flames. He was then fastened to a stake with iron straps around his waist and bags of gunpowder hung on his body and the fire was set. But the fire was so poorly set that he survived for 45 minutes burning in the flames. And as I said, this was a cruel and inhumane way to kill someone. And so in the same way, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego wouldn't disown their God. They were facing the fire, but they were devoted. Look what happens in verse 21. It says, Then these men were bound in their cloaks and their tunics and their hats and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent, and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Here's the first lesson that I want you to see from the furnace. It's that full devotion can lead you to dangerous places. Like when you obey God fully, it sometimes leads you to circumstances that don't feel safe. I was just reflecting myself. God had called me you know, to go some places in the world, even in our own city, that sometimes I don't feel safe. He's asked us, uh, Kim and I, to take people into our home for an extended period of time. It didn't feel totally safe. He's asked us to give a chunk of our income away, and it didn't feel totally safe. He's led me into conversations and confrontations that didn't feel safe. There are times when full devotion to Christ, when listening and obeying his promptings, leads us to do things that cause other people to shake their heads. And my experience is nothing compared to many others. And I would just ask you this, when is the last time you went out on a limb for Christ? Like when you obeyed him to the point that it didn't feel comfortable anymore. Because for most modern Christians, our greatest danger is not persecution. It's playing it too safe. It's the danger of becoming so comfortable and so apathetic that we never do or say anything that even resembles taking a stand for Christ. In fact, I would say a lot of Christians have as the primary unspoken goal of their lives furnace avoidance. Like we stay away from anything that might involve the slightest bit of discomfort. You see it in our conversations, like we avoid having a conversation about God like the plague, and, and we're just fearing that, that awkwardness. You see it in our prayers, like our prayers are dominated by requests for safety and comfort. Deliver me from pain, deliver me from suffering and inconvenience. Make my life smooth, God. Make my life easy, God. Make my life comfortable, make it pleasant. Remove all obstacles from it, please God, in Jesus' name. And I would push back and say, maybe we're praying in our own name, for our own good. And I would encourage you today to let your devotion to Christ lead you to make some courageous, maybe even dangerous choices. For Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, their full devotion led them to a fire. And they knew God could do a miracle. He could save them, but they weren't exactly sure that he would. As far as they knew, they might die in those flames. But their devotion led them to a furnace. 
And already we see the miracle is beginning. The fire was so hot that it killed the elite soldiers who opened the door, but it didn't kill these three. Let's see what God is about to do. Look at verse 24. It says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose up in haste, and he declared to his counselors, Did, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered and said to the king, True, O king. And he answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. The appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. And so imagine Nebuchadnezzar, smug and self-satisfied as he saw these three you know, troublesome rebels tossed into the fire. This will be a good lesson, he thinks, for these hundreds of thousands of other exiles. Obey me or else. I'll show them. And so he sat back and he crossed his arms. And he looks a little closer and he, and he can't even believe his eyes. They're walking around unharmed inside the furnace. And there are two lessons that I want us to see here. The first is this. Sometimes Jesus doesn't keep you from the fire, but he meets you in the fire. Like the first thing that shocks the king is that there's a fourth person in there. And notice he starts checking his math with his visors. He's like, I I know I lost my cool a little bit back there, but I didn't think I accidentally threw in an extra person. He said, I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire. Who's the fourth person? Well, there's theories. I believe that it's maybe a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. Like before he was born in Bethlehem, he visited the three Hebrew exiles in the fiery furnace in Babylon. And one clue is that Nebuchadnezzar describes him here as like a son of the gods. The king is saying there's something different. There's something even divine about that fourth figure. See, Jesus didn't protect them from the fire, but he showed up in the midst of it. Our Savior, he never lets us walk through a fire alone. I wonder what they said to each other in there. I wonder if the, if, if the Savior in the furnace told them how proud God was of their loyalty, how proud he was of their devotion and their courage. I wonder if he told them that, that because of this one act of faithfulness, that their names, even those pagan Babylonian names that were assigned to them, would be remembered and talked about for thousands of years, that people in Pennsylvania on the other side of the world in 2023 would see their deeds as an example and would admire their faith. Notice that Jesus never manifested himself anywhere else in this chapter except inside the furnace, like at that very moment when he was needed the most. I want you to use your imagination for a second. Picture for a moment Jesus having a calendar. I know this is a stretch since he exists outside of time, but bear with me. And on whatever date it was that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had their confrontation with Nebuchadnezzar, say it was January 29th, 604 B.C., at whatever time, 2 p.m., Jesus has written down in his calendar, meet Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the furnace. That's the day and that's the time I'm going to meet those boys in the fire. And and just think about this one more step. What if they had caved? What if they'd chickened out? What if they'd bowed down to the image? What if they'd missed their appointment with Jesus in the fire? Like this was going to be a moment that would change their whole lives forever. A brush with the divine. There's a big word, it's called theophany, a divine manifestation of God to a human. But their whole encounter with Christ depended on their devotion in that decision to not bow down to the idol. The middle of the fire is actually where they would meet God himself. And this is a good lesson for us. Like maybe you've gotten way too used to waking up in the morning and going to bed at night and in in between those things, having not one single moment of conscious awareness of God's presence. But he's there. And listen, it's in the fires of life that we often experience the presence of Christ most powerfully. 
so maybe you need to stop praying for deliverance from your fiery trial and ask for the presence of God to meet you in the midst of it. Instead of praying, God, get me out of this, pray, God, make me aware of your presence right here through this. So are you walking through a divorce today? How about a betrayal? Someone you thought was a friend did you wrong. Maybe it's a great disappointment or a loss or the death of someone close. Whatever your fire is today, sometimes Jesus doesn't prevent it from happening. Instead, he meets you within it so that he can get you through it. He doesn't show up until you're already right in there, right in the thick of it. According to your schedule, you think he's late, but, but on his schedule, he's right on time. I can imagine Moses leading a nation out of slavery with a pursuing army behind him and a, a Red Sea in front of him and saying, God, when are you going to show up? And God waited until they got right to the water's edge, and he said, I'll meet you in the middle of the sea. I can imagine Abraham in confusion taking his son up the mountain to sacrifice him, saying, God, when are you going to show up? And God waited until the wood was gathered, until the match was lit, until the spear was raised, and he said, I'm going to provide a lamb. And in the same way, I imagine Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as they were getting marched to the furnace, saying, God, you can show up any time now. They were being bound, and they're like, any time now. And God said, I'll see you inside the furnace. Now listen, this is a unique miracle. Every furnace that we face doesn't have a happy ending like this one. In fact, most Christians who have faced fire through history have been burned up. And although Jesus promises to always be with us, that doesn't always guarantee that, that standing up for what's right will work out for you in the end the way that you prefer it. And if he doesn't reward you for your devotion in this life, he promises to reward you in the next. But this side of heaven, I know this to be true. If you're walking through a fiery ordeal today, you're not alone. There's a savior in the fire with you. And that's where he does his best work. Well, there's one other lesson that I want you to see from these particular verses in verses 24 and 25. And that is that Jesus can use the fire to free you from what enslaves you. So, so the king was astounded by two things we saw. One is that there were four people in there, and he only put in three. The second thing, though, that he makes a big deal about is he says, I see four men unbound walking. Like, they should have at least been lying down, tightly bound in the bottom of that fire, but they weren't. They were unbound. They're walking around in there. They're having a little party. Imagine their experience. Like, this is not a fairy tale. These are real people, and so put yourself in their shoes for a second. What are you expecting? Well, the doors open. Three other dudes die from the heat, and you're like, man, I was expecting it to be hotter than it is. You get thrown in, you're waiting for the searing pain, you're waiting for the numbness, you're waiting for the, the, the smoke inhalation that will suffocate your lungs, but it doesn't happen. In fact, they don't feel any different. No burns, no smoke. They, they look down and realize that, that they're not bound anymore. In fact, the fire didn't even consume their clothing. It didn't consume their bodies. It didn't burn their hair. It only snapped the restraints that bound them. What a blessed loss. This is a very profound insight. Christ can actually use the fiery afflictions of this life to bring freedom from our bondage. See, fire has a way of removing the debris in our life. Afflictions and trials can often break the ties that bind us and set us free. A financial crisis can cause us to make some necessary simplifications. A relational trial can allow us to remove some people from our lives that are holding us down. A personal failure can force us to seek help in ways that we wouldn't otherwise. Sometimes in the fire, we find freedom. 
Many of you will never know this, the, the fullness of spiritual liberty until you spend some time in a fiery trial. Listen to how James, the brother of Jesus, puts it in James 1, 2, and 4. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that in the testing of your faith, it produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. He's saying there are good things that are produced. There are freedoms that come from the trials. And so in verse 26, the king sees four people in there, and they're not bound anymore. And so he approached the blazing furnace from a considerable distance, I'm sure. And he yells in there, hey, hey, hey guys, okay, that's enough. You, you can come out now. He had to be like, I can't believe this is happening. Come here, guys. <laughs> and so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego come out of the furnace. Wouldn't you love to see that victory walk? I imagine them doing the Conor McGregor billionaire strut out of that thing or, or maybe a, a slow motion movie walk set like to, to we are the champions. All right, we're being silly. Verse 27 says, and the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the king's counselors gathered together and they saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of these men. The hair of their heads was not singed, the cloaks were not harmed, no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and he said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. And they set aside the king's command. They set aside the king's command and they yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any gods except their own God. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. And then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. <laughs> okay, wow. So, so we have a real change of tune here. He says, first, I'll kill everyone who doesn't worship me. And he's like, never mind, I'll rip you limb from limb and burn your house down if you don't worship their God. So Nebuchadnezzar suddenly becomes an evangelist. Uh, but he's not real big on religious freedom. He's not a big Bill of Rights guy. He, he's like, okay, never mind about the gold statue. This is the one true God now. And if you have anything against this God, I'll rip you limb from limb. People are like doing schizophrenic bowing. They're, they're bowing to the statue. Now they're bowing toward the furnace. They're like, just tell us where to bow so we don't die. But go back for a second to this great detail about what little effect the fire had on them. It says uh, uh, their bodies and the hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. There was no smell of fire that had come upon them. Back up at verse 21, if you remember, the writer had gone into some detail about their clothes when they went into the furnace. Cloaks and tunics, their hats, their garments. Why, why do you think he's giving us this detail? You think the author here has like an eye for fashion? <laughs> no, he wants us to understand the extent of this miracle. He's saying not only are the men saved, they are totally saved. Their hair is okay. God has protected their highly flammable clothing. Heck, they don't even smell like fire. You ever go to a campfire? Like you can take 10 showers and you still smell like that dumb thing for a week. These guys weren't damaged at all. They didn't smell at all. They were untouched and unaffected by the fire. What we're supposed to see here in verse 27 where it says the, the fire had not had any power. This is a lesson about power. We're supposed to understand where does the power lie? And that big metal statue? No, that has no power. The king who thinks he has all the power? No, he has no power. Even the fire, who up until now, when people and fire had a run-in, fire was like undefeated. 
Even fire has no power when compared to our all-powerful God. Our God is more powerful than all of these. And so when you find yourself in a godless culture, there's a battle for power. Who has the power? The politicians? The government, the influencers, the media, the cancel culture, the big tech companies. Like when it comes to complying with them or obeying him, always obey him. Because his is the true power. Nebuchadnezzar sees it and he reacts. He says, okay, okay, I've been bested again by this God of yours. And again, Nebuchadnezzar goes off the rails. But... Another seed has been planted with the king. He will eventually become devoted to God, which leads to our fourth lesson. Your devotion during suffering will inspire others. Verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar says, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They trusted in him, and they set aside the king's command. Now that's an interesting phrase, because who's the king? Like, he's the king. So, so Nebuchadnezzar is now talking in the third person about himself. He's saying, they disobeyed me. This man who's killed his own soldiers and his carelessness didn't even register in his mind. Now he's congratulating Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego for having the audacity to defy his own authority. Like their bold stand had actually pointed Nebuchadnezzar to the one true God. And not just him, but by their one act of boldness, this has become a witness now of the true and living God to the entire Babylonian empire. Everyone saw this happen. And, and not everybody's converts yet, but they know who these exiles belong to. And let me just ask you a question. Do people in your circles know who you belong to? We said last week that people are watching you. This is true, even during and maybe especially during times of suffering. Do you realize that when you walk through fiery trials, you have the opportunity to impact the lives of people around you? And again, this is not a call to be overly simplistic or flippant or use cliches during our times of trial. You know, I've heard Christians say, oh yeah, my mom died last week, but God has a plan and we try to turn it over real quick. No, we must feel things deeply, experience life authentically, fully embrace our frailty, all with an unwavering resolve that God is good. I'm reminded of Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 1.4 when he says that, God comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. What's he saying? He's saying that in our own devotion during our times of suffering, we can inspire and maybe benefit others who may also be going through that same suffering. There's something almost contagious when you see someone's devotion, not just during suffering, really, but any time. Like when you see somebody taking a stand, when you see someone stepping up or declaring their faith, it's inspiring. There's a ripple effect. And we're about to experience this today at our in-person locations as we celebrate baptisms. People are leveling up. People are declaring their devotion to Jesus. And it's inspiring to all of us. It makes me want to jump out of my seat every single time and say, I'm in there with you. But before we do that today, I want to challenge the rest of you who aren't getting baptized today I want to walk you through a time of reflection and response. And I pray that this week you're going to have the opportunity to, to have a bold influence to show your devotion to someone in your life, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did in this story. So here's my next step today. 
The fiery furnace provided a unique opportunity for these three friends to show their devotion to God, to have God show up for them in the midst of their fiery trial. I want to challenge you today to, to do this, is to pray a dangerous prayer. And here's the prayer. God, give me an opportunity to show my devotion to you. Don't pray unless you mean it. But I just believe Grace Church and, and other believers who are watching this, that we are being called to deeper levels of devotion. It's not getting easier and easier to follow Christ in our society. It's getting harder and harder. It's going to require you to lean into God. It's going to require you to not be complacent. It's going to require you to familiarize yourself with the voice of the Holy Spirit and the voice of God through the Scriptures. It's going to require you to take your stands. The days of coasting through the Christian life, I believe, are over. And so maybe at work, maybe you're around people all day who are far from God. What if God would give you an opportunity to show your devotion? Or maybe it's developing more mature judgment, like knowing when to speak up and when to shut up. Maybe it's using your gifts to serve others, like God's been whispering to increase your devotion through service. Maybe there's a Nebuchadnezzar in your life that God wants to reach through you, someone in authority who intimidates you, maybe you don't like them very much, and, and, and maybe you need to quit praying that God would get you away from that person and start praying that God would help you to reach them through a demonstration of your devotion. Maybe you're in a furnace today. You need to ask God to meet you there. Listen, maybe you're at one of our sites today and you didn't plan on getting baptized, but in a moment that opportunity is going to present itself. And your next step is very clear today. Show your devotion to Christ in the waters of baptism. But will you pray this dangerous prayer? God, give me an opportunity to show my devotion to you. And here's the deal. You don't have to manufacture that devotion all by yourself. You don't need to do it alone. In fact, the greatest demonstration of devotion in history happened when Jesus, God himself, went to the cross. He showed his devotion to the Father, but he also showed his relentless devotion to us, his children. And the deliverance which Jesus has accomplished for us is like that described in Daniel 3. It's not a deliverance from a fiery trial that this world will throw at you, but it's ultimate deliverance because God himself went through the fire. Just like the fourth person was present with the Hebrews in the furnace, Christ has endured the wrath of God in our place. And we are delivered from God's eternal wrath because Jesus Christ went through the fire in our place. Deliverance, all deliverance, has been accomplished at the cross and the empty tomb. And so today we remember that yes, deliverance will come when we demonstrate our devotion, but our ultimate deliverance is only possible because of Christ's devotion. And that's what we celebrate today. I love you guys.